It is a really a privilege to be with you on this day. And uh, it's interesting that Colin mentioned uh, his calling to ministry through Christ Presbyterian Church uh, when he was in college because uh, that was my story. I went to a local church uh, that supported me through my college years in particular. And uh, sitting under the uh, preaching of my college pastor, Norm Coop, who's since passed away in 2016, but God used that to call me to ministry, so it's actually delightful to be able to participate and share this day with you, Colin. I consider it a privilege, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to be here for today. And I'm grateful and excited to hear about the ministry that Colin will have alongside of Troy here among you in years to come. Let's now, though, turn to uh, Titus, and as we do so, uh, as I... think about the book of Titus, uh, it reminds me a little bit, if you're a fan of that classic movie that I'm sure many of you know well, the Lego movie, you might remember the opening scene where the main character, Emmett, is going about his day joyfully singing Everything is Awesome as he's carefully following a set of instructions that looks very much like the set of instructions that comes with every delightful box of Legos. And in Paul's letter to Titus, we get this short, concise instruction manual for strengthening churches. And in his ministry, Paul, especially if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that he often had two phases of his ministry. So the first phase of his ministry, he would go to a new location and he would proclaim the hope that's found in Jesus and gather around him people who responded to that message and create a new Christian church, a new community of followers. And then he would move on to the next community and do the same thing there. But he also had a second phase to his ministry where he would revisit churches that he had already planted. And there's this phrase you see, especially in the book of Acts, where he would strengthen them. And what it looks like is that strengthening the churches was primarily about recognizing and raising up and authorizing leaders. I should have actually uh, had this uh, additional verse included in the reading. My apologies. But it's actually, if you have your Bible in front of you, you see that uh, in this instruction manual, verse 5, the very next verse, what is it that's priority number one that Paul points out to Titus? It is appoint elders. For many of us, that might sound a little anticlimactic. That's priority number one, first thing on the list. Of all the things that a church could do, Paul's big concern is essentially church leadership. It is. And in that way, Titus is especially relevant to our worship and our celebration today. Because we are appointing, we're celebrating and appointing Colin to serve as an elder among us specifically as a teaching elder recognized by you to lead you in preaching and teaching pastoral care and in prayer. We are doing what Paul himself instructed Titus to do. But whenever you select leaders for any organization, it's really important to know what that organization is supposed to be doing. And it's important for all of the leaders and members to be on the same page about what we're supposed to be doing together. Because if you're not, it's not going to make very much progress if we're pulling in different directions. So in our passage this morning, Paul gives us the reason for the church and the reach of the church, even in this little introduction. As he often does, 
he has loaded in a ton of theology that he's going to unpack more fully later on. We've actually heard echoes of it in the scripture passages we've heard in the worship service already. But we could call this introduction Paul's elevator pitch. His simple, concise summary of who he is and why he does what he does and why church elders and leaders following him should do what they do. And we get that in verses 1, 2, and 3. And in just three verses, Paul summarizes God's redeeming purposes from before the beginning of time up until Paul's present ministry with implications for our present and into the future. Paul moves back and forth from present to past to present. And so it might be helpful to simplify the structure a little bit and just take it in chronological order. So if we jump into the middle of verse 2, then we'll come back to verses 1 and 3 in just a bit. In verse 2, it all starts with God. Before the ages began, God promised. God promised the hope of eternal life. You read the Bible and God makes promises over and over to recover his wayward people so that they might live with him forever. But Paul traces these promises back into God's plans from before time began. This has been the plan always and forever. Think of a contractor building a house, right? If you uh, are smart, the first thing you're going to do is draw up blueprints. You're going to have an architect help you with the plan. And like an architect or contractor, God does the same thing. What does he want at the end of the process? He wants eternal life for men and women created in his image. For his people to dwell with him forever. That's the promise woven into the entire structure of the universe, time, and history. And then as history unfolds, God reveals this plan even as humanity continues generation after generation after generation to choose death instead of life, to choose isolation from God instead of fellowship with him. But at the proper time, God revealed this long-promised eternal uh, life in his word. And that includes words that he's spoken in history. But whenever you hear the phrase, at the proper time, Paul is talking about the word, capital T, capital W, as the Gospel of John says. The author of Hebrews says that in the past, God spoke in many ways. But now, in these last days, he has spoken finally and definitively, most clearly in his Son. Jesus Christ is God's best word to us. You ever start writing uh, an email or you start doing a text and then you're editing it, you're trying to get the tone right, and you're like, that's not right. And then eventually you're like, I should actually just call the person. Yeah, lots of nods. Yep, yeah. Or maybe even go see them. Actually, in our family, we've started texting each other when we're in different rooms. I should actually just get off the couch and go find my wife. But uh, that's kind of what God does in sending Jesus. Not that he's wasted time uh, texting like we do, but... Uh, the fact that God comes to us personally in Jesus is a great honor, privilege, joy that we celebrate. But if you stop and think about it, it also raises a little bit of an issue, right? So if you go to a concert, your favorite artist comes in town, but you don't land a ticket, you know, it kind of feels like you're left out, right? And we don't have the opportunity to be there in first century Galilee, 
So if God's revealed himself in person, how do we access that and enjoy it? Verse 3, Paul says, through preaching. Through preaching. Why? Back to verse 1. Paul preaches for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The unfolding of God's purposes for history doesn't stop at the incarnation at Christmas when Jesus is born. It doesn't stop at the cross and the empty tomb at Easter. As pivotal as those events are in the course of human history, for humanity to enjoy the rewards of what Jesus has accomplished, the news must be delivered to men and women and children. We must hear it. And God does that through preaching and proclamation. For example, it's actually quite convenient today that it's June 19th. Some of you might know that Juneteenth, which has been kind of an unofficial holiday since 1865 in the state of Texas, uh, it's been recently recognized as a federal holiday. But why was that day so significant? It actually came two years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. It actually came two months after Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. But Confederate soldiers only at that point who had continued previously fighting in Texas finally surrendered. And then the Union Major General Gordon Granger announced the end of legalized slavery in the state of Texas. Freedom. Liberation. Though a war may end... A slave or a POW is not released until news is broadcast where they are captive or enslaved. And that was Paul's job, and that's Titus's job, and it's now the job of every preacher, Troy, myself, Colin. And it's going to be Colin's job, whether it's in public worship here from the front, or whether it's in Bible study together in smaller groups, home to home, or in private conversation to broadcast the good news about Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect, those who already believe and those who have not yet. Now, when Paul speaks of God's elect, he's not trying to start a debate about obscure points of predestinarian theology, so some of you can all sigh a breath of relief. He's simply picking up one of the main storylines of the Bible, and applying it to the church. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, Israel was God's elect, his chosen ones, his loved ones. And the one family among all the families of the world, the one nation among all the nations of the world that God called and chose for his purposes. And then through Paul's ministry, God has made explicit what was true even in the earliest days with the family of Abraham, that membership in God's people, membership among his elect was never based on merely family connection or national citizenship, but upon faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, upon the God of Israel. The fruit of God's plan before time, unfolding in history, climaxing with the life, death, and resurrection from the dead of Jesus, and then preached by Paul, the fruit of all of that is this new community spreading around the globe of which you are a part from Jerusalem 
to Crete in this passage to here in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, and then continuing on and on and on and on until Jesus returns for us. The church, God's people dwelling with him, is the goal of all human history. It's God's goal for history. Ultimately fulfilled in a new heavens and earth when we will enjoy fully what we only get the smallest slivers of now. You're about to have a feast, and that feast is just the smallest foretaste of the feast we're going to enjoy with all the saints gathered around the Lord Jesus. That's why in the wisdom of God, the church exists. Now, maybe you're visiting this morning and something has prompted you to ask questions about life and God that you haven't asked before or for a long time. And that's why you're here this morning. And you didn't even realize that you got to be part of an ordination service. So surprise, welcome. Uh, Apologize if things are a little bit longer. I'll try to do my best not to contribute to that. Uh, I hope that you come back in future weeks. That's like Colin's preaching next Sunday and and Troy in future weeks. Uh, I encourage you to come back and to enjoy the community here. But you may be feeling sort of wary, not sure what to expect. Because honestly, Christians and churches often do a pretty poor job of staying on message. And as Christians, as churches, we just have to be honest about that. But here it is, in the midst of a world filled with noise and distraction and half-truths and spin, broken promises and manipulation, the always true God has kept his promises. He has revealed himself to the world in the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at the person of Jesus and see how he reveals himself in the Gospels. He came so that you and I might know him and enjoy him and do that forever. And this church exists so that you might hear that and experience what it's like to relearn how to live life in light of that hope together. That's the godliness that Paul's talking about in the passage, relearning how to live life together in light of that hope with one another and with our God. Now, others of you, you might come to church often and always kind of or recently started to wonder why. It might be a habit. Maybe it's a habit that actually survived COVID. Well done. Uh, Maybe it's something that you have come back to after a time away. You may even confess Jesus as Lord and be grateful for what he's done for you, but there's always been this disconnect between your love of Jesus and your experience of the church. And that's not surprising because often the church is not particularly lovely and you just have to read headlines to hear about failure after failure uh, by the church and the treatment of those uh, in her midst. But those are, Lord willing, not the most common experience. As believers in Jesus, though, we, it's not, we don't love the church because she is lovely. Jesus loves his church. He loves us despite our unloveliness. And that's why messy and unlovely people like me and like you, although you look wonderful today, are welcome. We're welcome. For those of you who serve faithfully, I see all the chairs. Somebody set those up. 
whether you're helping with setup or nursery or sound or music or greeting team again and again and again and again. You might have those Sunday mornings where the alarm goes off and you just want to roll over and stay in bed. When you're feeling tired of pitching in, remember what you are a part of. As you come and you serve and you do simple acts of service for one another, you are part of nothing less than the unfolding purposes of the creator of the universe overcoming every obstacle of human waywardness. And if you aren't already pitching in, I bet Troy and Colin could find something for you to do. The first time I met Colin, actually, was when he signed up as a freshman in order to help set up chairs at our local YMCA for worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church. And I know he'd been serving his church before that in high school, uh, but even though Colin's ordained ministry begins today, he has been serving the church, and God's been uh, working through him for years already in those simple acts of service. You don't have to be a Paul or a Titus. We don't have to be remembered through the ages. We may simply be one of the unrecorded and unheralded believers, like those who actually first carried the message of Jesus back home to Crete, maybe after they heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Like them, we may be struggling along with plenty that's going on in our lives and stuff that's going on in our church, lots of things that need to be put right. But like them, we are recipients of a trust to pass on to others as they have passed it on to us through all of the intervening generations. That's the reason for the church. But there's also the reach of the church. This will be a little bit shorter, but it's quite striking when you stop and think about it. There's this picture of the reach of the church woven into this introduction. In verse 4, Paul says that he's writing... To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. That's really remarkable. Because on one hand, you have Paul, who's one of the best known and most colorful individuals of the ancient world. He has a top-notch Jewish education. He has a top secular Greek education for the day. He enjoyed all the privileges of Roman citizenship. It would have opened many doors. And yet he seems to, in a sense, have been radicalized as a young man. Today, he might be somebody who, uh, in his early days, was uh, looking like a militant fundamentalist Muslim or an alt-right domestic terrorist. T today, uh, he, he would be uh, violent and dangerous. And he despised Jewish disciples of Jesus for polluting the pure Jewish faith with the heresy of worshiping Jesus. He is one of the most improbable converts in history, and yet God does not care about probabilities. And we learn in this extraordinary encounter that he has with the resurrected Jesus that God not only calls him to himself, Jesus not only calls him to himself, but he says, I want you to tell the nations about me. And he's writing this letter after he's been doing that for decades, fulfilling that call. Paul, one hand. On the other hand, though, you have Titus. He's probably the most important person in the New Testament that you've never heard of or not really thought much about. 
He appears frequently in Paul's letters, but he's uh, never mentioned in the book of Acts. And some scholars actually think that that means he probably traveled with Paul for many of those journeys. It's remarkable that he should be such a key companion and partner of Paul because he was not Jewish at all. He was a Gentile. He's a member of the nations. He was an outsider, outsider to Israel. So you have Paul, the ultra Jew over here, and you have Titus, non-Jewish, and pre-conversion Paul would have either despised someone like Titus or not even spared a thought for him. Were it not for Jesus, they may never have met. And yet because of Jesus, they end up in this partnership where they are uh, doing good, building communities of faith, and becoming dear friends and fellow workers. Paul speaks affectionately of Titus as his true child. And on this Father's Day, praise God if your dad was awesome. We ask for God's grace and mercy to you if he was absent or worse. But whatever that case might be, let's be grateful for our spiritual fathers. And may God give many of the men here today opportunity and ability to be spiritual fathers who rely on and point us toward Jesus my true child in a common faith. But a common faith does not mean clear sailing, sipping cocktails together on the Mediterranean coast, if you know anything about these two men's lives together. Much the opposite. Paul and Titus actually end up in the middle of two of the biggest arguments that convulsed the church in her earliest days. So in in Galatia, Paul had planted churches, then others had followed, saying... It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You actually also have to be Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You need Jesus plus something else. And uh, Paul makes the devastating argument in the letter that he wrote to those churches that when you do that, whenever you add something that you have to have alongside of Jesus, the something you add always ends up being more important than Jesus. That's the danger. And in that argument, Paul's opponents claimed that the leadership of the mother church in Jerusalem actually supported them. And Paul said, actually, hold on now. Let me tell you about my own visit to Jerusalem where I sat down with the apostles who you're claiming support you with your Jesus plus something message. I visited with them, sat down, had a great meeting. We sat together with my good friend, Titus. And he wasn't Jewish. And he wasn't circumcised, but he had the Holy Spirit and he confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one said he needed to be circumcised or Jewish to be part of the people of God. Then you have the other great controversy that uh, Titus ends up in the middle of. And this actually shows his uh, pastoral care. Uh, I kind of wonder if Titus was a better pastor uh, than Paul, even if Paul may have been the more memorable preacher and missionary. Because Paul ends up uh, planting this church in the city of Corinth. And after he left, there's all of these problems that come up. And Paul is writing letters back and forth. We have two of those letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But 2nd Corinthians actually tells us there was another letter in between. So I don't know if we want to call that Corinthians 1.5 or something like that. But apparently, Paul wasn't especially spirit-inspired when he wrote that letter. We don't have it. Nobody kept it. It's actually uh, in the midst of this tense back and forth 
which uh, sent Paul out of his Holy Spirit-inspired mode. Uh, It's actually Titus who helps the church be reconciled with him in the midst of all of that conflict. You have um, other protégés of Paul mentioned in the New Testament. You have two letters written to Timothy. And as you read those letters, it seems like Timothy is young and experienced, maybe not super confident. And yet you don't get any of that in Titus. Titus was rock solid and reliable. And in many ways, as I was thinking about this passage, that made me think of Colin. So pretty fitting for, for today. Rock solid and reliable. Jesus brought Paul and Titus together with a common faith. But maintaining that common faith took work. It took hard work, which is the same thing it's going to take today. And I would just say, uh, Troy has already said, pray for uh, your pastors as they're participating, your pastors and elders of your denomination as they're doing General Assembly this coming week. Pray for your pastors and your elders and your deacons and your volunteer leaders. Pray for them all of the time because they need it. They're doing hard work, and maintaining the common faith is difficult. Especially today, we've seen it, different issues, same struggle. There are always things that are threatening to pull us apart from one another. The past couple of years, it has been things like, do we mask or do we not mask? Do we vaccinate or do we not ma- vaccinate? We're pulled apart by things like political party or political personalities or by class or level of education or by race. But Jesus is the one who pulls us back together towards one another. It doesn't say that we have a common political affiliation. It doesn't say that we have a, a common uh, college graduation. It says that we have a common faith. And that brings uncommon people who are different from each other, like us, together around Jesus. And it takes hard work to maintain and sustain that. But in Jesus, we do this because in Jesus, there is nothing in this age or this world which is ultimate. Our ultimate goal, as we said earlier, is the hope of eternal life, everlasting life together with God, and with one another in a renewed creation, free of sorrow, free of sin, free of death and disease, free of conflict and controversy. So if you don't agree with somebody right now, it's okay because Jesus will tell you where you're wrong and where I'm wrong, and we can take care of it then. Isn't that good news? And as we do the work of making Jesus known and this hope of eternal life, we, we, we need one another. Because our goal is to encourage one another and welcome those that God brings to himself. And we cannot do that work by ourselves. What's the reason for the church? Paul and Titus and the churches of Crete served and they enjoyed God by declaring the truth about Jesus and striving to live God-glorifying lives so that their neighbors might come to know and enjoy the hope too. And our existence today, together with fellow believers and fellow churches throughout our town, our state, our country, and the world, is the evidence of the reach of God's grace through them, and the reach he might extend through you into the future. Because he's continuing that work today, day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. And as you do that work, I would simply say to you, 
what Paul wrote to Titus. May the grace and peace of God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior sustain and strengthen you. Let us pray.